Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 9th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll talk about New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees becoming the NFL's all-time passing yardage leader. We'll also discuss the UFC fight between Habib Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor and the fights inside and outside the ring after the officially sanctioned fight was over. And we'll look at college football at the season's halfway point where somehow, someway, Alabama is good again and Notre Dame is looking like a playoff contender. Stefan Fatsis is out this week. Joining in his stead is our Slate colleague, Ben Mathis Lilly, who recently expressed that he would pay for an app that removed the Chargers from his TV feeds and consciousness, a sentiment that got five likes on Twitter. Congratulations, Ben. That's my most liked tweet ever. Uh, (laughs) And Joel Anderson of ESPN on the other line, don't laugh yet, Joel, because I'm going to mention your tweet that got a single solitary like mentioning that mahogany is one of your favorite words and you wish you could find a way to use it every day. I, uh, it's just a testament to the idea that you should never tweet, basically. So. <laughs> so the notion that the Chargers should be eradicated from human consciousness is five times more popular than the idea that mahogany is a good word. I mean, I, th- I think that just speaks to the colorism of our society, probably. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think no. we all need to look uh, look deep into our hearts and and figure out why Joel's tweet was not more popular. <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's talk about football on Monday night in New Orleans with a 62 yard touchdown pass to rookie wide receiver Traquan Smith. Saints quarterback Drew Brees broke the NFL's all time record for passing yards which had been held by Peyton Manning. Here, courtesy of Breeze's microphone, is what it sounded like on the field after he set that record. I love you, bro. I love you, bro. I love you, bro. Hey, boys! How about that, huh? How about that? Hey, I love you guys so much. Hey, you're going to accomplish anything in life you're going to work for, right? I love you, boys. I love you. So Drew Brees hasn't just taught us how to play quarterback at a high level. In that clip, he has taught us about the three different kinds of love in the world. There's the love you have for your children, for your coach, and for your left tackle. Um, The moment that ESPN focused on for the whole night was what he said to his kids, which, if you couldn't make it out, was you can accomplish anything in life if you're willing to work for it. That's the message that we're supposed to take away from Breeze's career. He was undersized and disrespected coming out of high school and college. The Chargers let him go because of what was supposed to be a career-ending shoulder injury, those damn Chargers again. Uh, But he fought through and he led the Saints to the Super Bowl and he's now put up more yards than Manning and Favre and everyone else in football history who's more of a prototypical, statuesque, strong-armed quarterback. Joel, what do you think about that? gloss on on Drew Brees' career and kind of what he's stood for? 
Um, I think Drew Brees is a testament to the uh, importance of timing and working for a good boss. Um, by which I mean that, so he starts at Purdue uh, under Joe Tiller. Like his first year at Purdue, he gets recruited to Purdue by Joe Tiller. Um, and I know Joe Tiller is not one of those people, like he doesn't even get like Bill Snyder type props, right? But Purdue is pretty much a nowhere job for a lot of people. Like people go there and their career dies. And if you look at the history of Purdue football, they've been to bowl games 18 times. 10 of them were under Joe Tiller. And this is like before like the proliferation of bowl games, right? So like he played for a guy like Joe Tiller who was willing to spread the field and throw it all the time and overlook the overlook the fact that like Drew Brees wasn't one of those like tall statuesque dudes. Then he goes to San Diego where he's playing for Mike Riley and Norv Turner. You know what I mean? Like so like like that his career, his first few years gets off to a really slow start. He plays for Marty Schottenheimer for a little bit. Another guy, you know, kind of one of those like old school, you know, we got to run the ball in between the tackles, establish the run on first down, you know, so we're not playing behind the sticks. And then he goes to New Orleans and plays for Sean Payton, another guy who is willing to like tailor his offense to his talent and let him throw the ball around the field and saw like uh, the best possible version of what Drew Brees can be. Like, I, it's not that. So that's what I actually think of. Like, I think that Drew Brees is a talent and like, you know, that he's sort of he's unique among some of the best guys in the history of the game. But I, when I think about him, I also think about the fact that he was really, really lucky that he played for guys that saw that in him and were willing to invest in him, despite like what other people may have seen as limitations. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like Ben, um, Peyton Manning was obviously going to be a quarterback given his pedigree and right. given his his attributes. But I hadn't really thought about it that way. Just this idea that um, anybody who achieves like the highest possible level of their sport, it's funny to imagine that they just like wouldn't have even had an opportunity. But Breeze is the rare guy who's like an all-time great record setter who you can seriously imagine that applying to. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I look at uh, look at Doug Flutie. I, I mean, not, not obviously not not directly comparable in terms of the style of play. Who, but, who Breeze you know, replaced in San Diego, and that yeah, and someone who who really didn't really didn't ever get a chance uh, to, uh, to to play quarterback in the NFL uh, because he he was good at the wrong time. And yeah, now you have guys like um, Baker Mayfield was the number one overall pick in the draft, who's similarly short. Um, I think that you could make the argument that that wouldn't have happened if not for Drew Brees. Um, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that absolutely is right. That like people saw in Drew Brees, people started to open up their idea, their idea a little bit more of what a quarterback could be. So yeah, like you hear, you know, Russell Wilson, Baker Mayfield. Um, I, you know, I was reading, uh, you know, I apologize. You know, I was reading a, a, a ESPN insider a piece, uh, by Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay on Kyler Murray, who's, you know, the quarterback at the University of Oklahoma, is a guy that is generously listed at, like, 5'11". I think he's, like, more a like A guy that five, you profiled. A guy that I profiled, right. And, you know, he's already, he's supposed to go to the Oakland A's. You know, he's got that signing bonus, blah, blah, blah. But, like, they're saying that, yo, if he went to the NFL draft, that he probably wouldn't last below the third round. And, like, I mean, yes, he's a Heisman Trophy candidate. He's a top dude. Like maybe even that is sort of underselling him. But the idea that NFL teams would be willing to give a guy who's about five foot nine a chance at the NFL, I think that some of that is a testament to Drew Brees that he's sort of like opened up 
you know, people have sort of reconsidered uh, like what a quarterback might look like. Like, so obviously that doesn't apply to everybody, right? Because some people still look at Lamar Jackson and wanting to run, you know, wide receiver routes in NFL combine. But uh, for a guy that's sort of a pocket guy, uh, throw, likes to throw the ball around the field, but isn't quite six foot two or six foot three, then I think that Drew Brees has been like, like big for them. Like, you know, people can sort of look at him. He's like the patron saint of the short quarterback, right? Yeah. So there've been a lot of pieces kind of in the run up to this record, um, just cause we knew that this was going to happen. And so there are a lot of retrospectives. And my favorite tidbit from that was from Marcus Colston, his longtime number one receiver with the saints who said most of the intermediate routes that he was running, I would just see the ball come out of a pile of folks. Like Breeze was so short, he literally couldn't see him. The ball would just emerge. And just so thinking about the mechanics of that and how atypical it is just makes his accomplishments more remarkable. But Ben, I wanted to ask you just as somebody who is not a uh, Drew Breeze stan and a New Orleanian like I am, like, what do you make of Breeze's persona like this is a guy who has never turned down an endorsement um that message that he gave to his kids was just like so kind of pitch perfect for the moment and they were eating it up on monday night football i wonder sort of just how he comes off to you uh you know what actually made me think last night watching the game was was like i kind of wish i had been watching more saints games throughout the years um I, I feel like I have this feeling that, that like for the last 10 years of the NFL, I've been watching in many ways, like the same nine to seven Raven Steelers game, um, <laughs> you know, just like, like Joel was talking about these, these very grinding offenses, uh, you know, very statuesque quarterbacks. Um, and, and I was watching Breeze and I, I was watching Breeze throw it around the field and score 40 points. I was thinking, well, this, this is fun. I enjoy watching this. The Saints have a great atmosphere. Um, I kind of wish I had seen more of this guy. Um, you know, you can compare him to, to Peyton Manning. Uh, Manning, obviously, an incredible quarterback. His accuracy, his you know, his vaunted uh, intelligence, ability to read the defense. But but watching Peyton Manning is not like a viscerally exciting experience. You know, I thought you were like, going to say Peyton was an incredible pitch man. You're going to compare <laughs> their like pitching ability. <laughs> Peyton Manning may be more fun to watch in commercials than than on the field. You know, I mean, watching Peyton Manning was like watching a lot of kind of slow, somewhat wobbly, like eleven yard passes go to the exact right guy <laughs> that he had identified pre snap to fit into the zone. Whereas watching Breeze is, you know, like you know, like we're saying, watching a, a pretty short guy, you know, chuck these these, you know, fast, uh, impressive, you know, laser like downfield passes. So I kind of wish I'd been watching more Saints games. And I actually want to turn that on on you, Josh, and ask, you know, what is there something about New Orleans uh, as a sports city that that keeps it from kind of creeping over into that top premier uh, brand level? You know, like a. Uh, in in the NBA right now, New Orleans has Anthony Davis, one of the best players uh, in the league. It uh, made the second round of the playoffs last year, but people are still kind of kind of wondering if he's going to leave. And I feel like there's a you know there's kind of a parallel situation there to Breeze not being quite as famous as Brady or Manning, and that New Orleans maybe is just not considered one of these top tier cities. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about that or why, why that might be. I think New Orleans is a trash city. Is is uh... <laughs> No, I totally, I totally agree with that. Uh, no, I think that there are different situations with the NFL and NBA in New Orleans. Um, the city, you know, has never fully embraced the Pelicans in the way they have the Saints. There's not the tradition there. The Jazz were obviously there and, and moved away to right. Utah. Um, but, you know, the Pelicans have always seemed – 
like they had kind of a tenuous place in the city, you know, with, you know, they moved to Oklahoma City briefly and then came back and um, the crowds aren't that great. And it just always kind of seemed like a matter of time that Davis was going to leave just because that's all that's also just what happens in the NBA these days. And it just has taken them way, way too long to put a contending roster around them. And so that's kind of on them a little bit as well. But with um, Breeze, as Joel said, you know, he's been with Sean Payton now for 12 years and they've had um, that partnership and he's never really wanted to leave. And the city has this like longstanding relationship with the Saints. It's a football city and a football state. And so there's that kind of like mutual love and appreciation there. And as far as like why nationally, they haven't had the same cachet. I mean, they did during the Super Bowl year when they started sure. 13 and, and oh, I think it's because they've had a trash defense uh, for mm-hmm. most of a decade. And that's also, I think, why Breeze has been able to set the record because they spent years playing from behind right. and, you know, putting up I, all the 5,000 yard seasons that he's put up was not necessarily because he's such a great player. I mean, he is a great player. Um, but the causa- the causation was because they were always losing. And last year he had, you know, one of his lesser seasons in terms of yards because Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram both had right. like, you know, great seasons running the ball. And so I think that's why they've been why that's why he's been fun to watch, but that's also why the team hasn't necessarily always been successful for all the years he's been there. New Orleans a, a great American city with a trash defensive secondary. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy you guys said cuz like is this actually a record that we care about? Like I didn't realize that this was a thing until you know like last week that he was on the cusp of this record. Like, it's just, I, I don't know. Like, maybe I'm that far removed from following the NFL that closely that, you know. I, I watched that, it last night, and I couldn't even tell you what the number is anymore. I I feel like I knew it for about five seconds. But no, I think it's like, you know, 538 touchdowns, I think, is the record. I mean, it's just, I think it's just an opportunity um, to for the NFL to like bring out the Hall of Fame dude with the white gloves yeah. to with for the for the football and for the NFL to like take itself seriously. But yeah, no, I think before this week, I don't think anybody necessarily had that as like a vaunted number. Uh, that guy really freaked out. By the way, I watched I watched the game with with my uh, wife and and my in laws, and those uh, in attendance watching who did not follow football were very frightened by the appearance of that. Hall of Fame guy with his white gloves. They thought he was possibly there to murder somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be efficient. Yeah, he was he was there to do both. Joel, do you have any thoughts on Breeze um, as a pitch man or as a spokesperson for the NFL? Like one thing that I think is really interesting is that as as one of the like five million corporate branding exercises that he undertakes is that he launched this flag football league. Um, that he's like trying to make this national six on six league. And he's even talked about it saving the game um, as far as, um, you know, having a safer alternative to the sport um, that I, I found that interesting because he's somebody that I think the NFL um, celebrates as being the best of the game. And the fact that even he is talking about a need to, you know, make the game safer, even even as he's using it as a marketing exercise, is is interesting to me. So I guess, like, what I what I think about Drew Brees is that 
I mean, he sold Advocare to people. You know what I mean? Like he's, yeah. It actually, it makes you. It makes me wonder. Like, are his finances okay? You know, <laughs> for some of the, you know, because I mean, like, it just it just sounds like, I don't know. I mean, there's no um, artful way of saying this, but it just sounds like the white collar, like record label or t-shirt company. You know, well, I got this, you know, product here. In, in Brett Favre, in Brett Favre, also behind something that's supposedly going to help save the game, some sort of a product, or there was something that was going to, like, help, like, make the game safer. So whenever I just see a guy involved in something like that, I'm just like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, maybe, maybe your discretion, maybe your judgment isn't as good as it should be. And, you know, and that, that's kind of reflective in the idea that he was the front man for Advocare for so long. Um, it, you know, Drew Brees is just, like, basically, you know, like, he's a, a centrist kind of guy, you know what I mean? Like he's never said anything controversial. He's never, you know, um, you know, when all this stuff, you know, has been going on politically, socially around the, the country. Like, I mean, it is, uh, was it his mother that was like a, a Texas politician of some yeah. sort, like maybe some, sort of a local politician. Right. And like, he's never taken a position on anything. Like he's never, you know, all he is is a pitch man. And which is actually, I mean, I guess that's fine, but I just, you know, it's called, it sort of leaves you lacking. Like, I don't, I don't, Drew Brees' story is much more interesting than he is. And a lot of times that's enough. But like, I just kind of wonder, you know, five, 10 years from now, um, you know, if we'll, sometimes you, you see guys like Joe Montana. I remember when Joe, after Joe Montana retired and they tried to bring him out on TV every now and again. And I was just like, oh man, this is really sad. Like Joe Montana has nothing else to offer. Um, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of wonder that if, about Drew Brees too. I mean, it's interesting that, in, you know, we're talking about his uh, uh, on the field. He's he's kind of the avatar of the new, like, exciting, innovative spread game. But as Joel is pointing out, off the field, he, he's kind of a throwback. You know, he is the, like he's saying, he's the centrist, white-collar pitch man. He's basically who you get if, if Brett Favre is, is, like, too spicy. Or Peyton Manning, you know, like, Peyton Manning <laughs> is too colorful for your product. Too wacky. Uh, you, get, uh, you get Drew Brees. And, and, you know, so, right, so he's kind of playing a, you know, that 80s, uh, 70s, 80s quarterback role, despite the fact that on the field he's, uh, he's um, you know, he's kind of at the forefront of, of the, the way the game is actually played. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to UFC, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk uh, to Joel about his upcoming feature for ESPN on Penny Hardaway, the legend of the NBA and the college basketball game. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Saturday night in Las Vegas, Habib Nurmagomedov defeated Conor McGregor in the fourth round of their UFC title fight with the Russian winning via the famed rear naked choke to retain his lightweight championship belt. But then, after the fight, the Russian Nurmagomedov jumped out of the cage to attack 
McGregor's teammate Dylan Dennis. Meanwhile, though nobody seemed to notice it at the time, McGregor jumped to the top of the fence and threw a punch at one of Nurmagomedov's teammates. And then two of those teammates jumped in the ring and started attacking McGregor. After the match, UFC president Dana White said, it's just really disgusting and disappointing to me. But as Yahoo's Dan Wetzel argued in his post-fight column, these are surely crocodile tears because this fight uh, after the fight is surely good for business. This match was already the biggest in UFC history, and the inevitable rematch is now going to be even bigger. We can get into the backstory in just a minute, but the notion that this is a stain on the sport is just hilarious to me, Ben. It's like spilling grape juice on grape juice. I don't uh, I don't think that uh, a stain is really at issue here. Like, how do you feel about um, how this kind of plays into the UFC aesthetic? I mean, I, I will take the opportunity to make the obvious kind of point here that I did not know about this fight before it happened. The I obvious think. fight. The obvious hmm. point is that you didn't know about the fight. Uh, well, no, <laughs> I, I, the, the obvious point here is that I, I, as a person with very limited MMA knowledge, did not know about this fight before it happened. Now I know who both these people. Oh, I knew a little bit who McGregor was, but now I know who uh, Habib is. Uh, and you know, I there's an outside chance I would watch the second one or, you know, chip in if someone put me in a situation to chip in for the pay-per-view for the rematch. Uh, it's certainly something that's going to be on my radar. Um, and, uh, you know, it's these guys punching each other, um, out of the <laughs> ring instead of in the ring. Obviously I, I, I have, whenever these kind of things happen, uh, and, you know, going back to the malice at the palace, um, uh, you, you kind of want to find the person who is actually upset by it because everyone, like you're pointing out, like Dana White here, and, and, and when the Ron Artest brawl happened, everyone knows they're supposed to act upset by it, but mm-hmm. mostly people find it kind of exciting and entertaining. So I, I, I wonder, who is this mythical person who actually genuinely feels that that the sport of punching each other uh, and rear-naked choke-holding each other has been disgraced when, when like, four punches are thrown, um, you know, slightly after the, the bell rings? So, I mean, the real disgrace here was in the run-up to the fight where McGregor was talking about Nurmagomedov's religion, um, you know, he's Muslim, saying that his manager was involved in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, McGregor is consistently throughout his career been racist and homophobic. I'm seeing this report on TMZ that the guy Dylan Dennis that Nurmagomedov attacked outside the ring called him a fucking Muslim rat like was yelling at that at him during the match. And this like during this pre-fight kind of hype period when McGregor was doing all this shit and talking all this shit, um, there were there was another fight and McGregor like attacked a bus that Nurmagomedov was on with a dolly, like smashed the window with a with a dolly, and he got brought into, you know, the the police station and the UFC like used the footage of him attacking the bus as yeah. hype for the match. Right. It's it's truly insane. Like as Ben said, like Joe Rogan on the on the fight afterwards was talking about how this was like a stain on the sport and a dark day for the sport. A sport that was like using basically the same exact shit to hype the fight going into it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's weird because it, it, it's interesting the BML, you know, mentioned the uh, malice at the palace because it was what a few years ago 
when Grantland did an oral history of the malice at the palace. And like by that point, everybody like realized, oh, this was actually hilarious. Like maybe it looked scary in the moment, but like, oh, that's like an it like it wasn't actually a stain on the game. It's like one of the more remarkable moments in the history of the sport. And everybody kind of laughed it off. Nobody really got hurt. Um, and it was fun. And so, yeah, that's actually the thing that I'm thinking about. Like, we live in a time of like rapidly degrading, like rapidly, like this rapid degradation of social norms, like from the top on down, right? Like, so like, why are people insisting that like, this is actually a bad thing? Like we, we actually know that people don't care about like, (laughs) about certain social norms anymore. You know what I mean? Of like, like what's acceptable to say about people, what's acceptable to do to people about how we demonize people, blah, blah, blah. Like, not like none of that matters anymore like nobody cares and so like for people to be like well hey a fight broke out after a fight um like that's terrible it doesn't make any sense and i mean even if you're looking on social media before these fights or in the weigh-ins or whatever you'll always see like little video of like fans getting in the fights in the audience like like i saw one of those this week, right before the fight, that apparently, like some, uh, you know, McGregor's Irish fans and some other, uh, you know, uh, Habib's, you know, I guess Muslim fans, whatever his fan, Russian fans were out there kind of, you know, scrapping it out in the audience at one of the weigh-ins. And I'm just like, yo, like this happens all that, like people that go to these things, like go there with the understanding that, yo, man, like there are a lot of people here that like to fight, people enjoy fights, people go there and get drunk. Something might happen. So I just. I guess I'm just like, why are people pretending now still? Why are we pretending that any of this ever matters? Well, it gets to the point of what's real and what's fake. And obviously, like UFC's cachet is that it appealed to a lot of fans of pro wrestling who wanted the same kind of shit talking and like people grappling with each other, but wanted it to be real. And the the thing with McGregor is that he is like a fascinating character because he takes the like pre-fight talking to a level where it's like on the borderline between being like real and being for show. And he takes it so far in terms of like what a horrible, what horrible stuff he says, you know, the racist and homophobic stuff he said before the Mayweather fight, which was basically, that fight was conjured out of nothing just based off of, Mm-hmm. McGregor and Mayweather's bravado and what a success, you know, monetary success that was. And so I've seen some people who are like, well, the problem was Habib didn't realize that this was all just for show and it was all like a game. Well, <laughs> I mean, like people are like having this so many different ways. So on the one hand, you know, we're supposed to believe that McGregor, you know, that he's just like playing a character, right? Well, even if you stipulate that, like the UFC is profiting off of a guy whose character is like horribly racist and homophobic and anti-Muslim. And we're expecting his opponent, we're like, we're mad at his opponent for taking it seriously. Like that's, that's like that side of the argument, I guess. You know, I, I mean, a guy who, who, who definitely knows <laughs> that at least some of McGregor's act is not fake, is the guy who got hit by the flying glass shards <laughs> from the bus window. When he, he threw 
a piece of steel through the window of a bus. You know, I mean, that that to me um, indicates that, yeah, if they are stoking this in some way, you know, maybe they have gone a little a little too far um, um, in uh, in letting him play this character. But this is a classic thing in fighting sports, right, Joel? It's like there's always the, like, interest in, like, watch the white guy fight the black guy um, in boxing. There's also and, – and this seems to be, like, stoking, like, pretty dangerously – interest and like watch the like white Irish, you know, Christian guy go after the like Russian Muslim guy. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, so what McGregor did before Nate Diaz is that he called, I think he, he referred to his campus like cockroaches, uh, you know, like all in uh, good certainly, fun. yeah, all in good fun. Right. Like he, he told, uh, Floyd Mayweather the day, I mean, uh, okay. Floyd Mayweather is not like some sort of tragic figure. He's not somebody <laughs> that people typically empathize with, but like, McGregor knew exactly what to go to to go up against the line uh, to say, hey, dance for me, boy, called his team, you know, dancing monkeys. Um, uh, so, like, yeah, like he, he plays with this and then he did this with, you know, Habib's team. And I mean, man, you just can't you you I guess you can play with that. But the idea that, like, you must suffer racialized abuse silently um, and that like that that is not. That, that that doesn't reflect poorly on the UFC, but that, that somebody might respond to it is a problem. Um, I mean, it's kind of a, I guess that's sort of a, a commentary on like where we are right now, actually. You know, that people are, so people are expected to suffer racialized abuse and silence. Right, and, and it's coming from a guy who's, you know, Irish, who, who doesn't have to take it. I mean, what can you say about Conor McGregor that, that is anywhere near as inflammatory uh, or offensive as those things that, that you guys have just, have just said so he gets to dish it out, but you know he doesn't really get to, t- to have to take it because he's he's the, he's the white guy. Well, in these combat sports, Ben, it's just a special category where you can just act abominably in a way that you can't in any other sport or any realm of other realm of society, and you're still bankable. And I think it's not just a UFC thing, like you were saying. And I'm not like calling you out specifically because I think I've. I probably feel the same way too. In in some sense, it's like it makes it more interesting. It's like right. disgusting to say that, but why do you? I mean, is it just because we just put these guys in a special category because like they're already punching each other and kicking each other, and so like, um, you know, it's it's just like in a corner of the id where basically anything goes. Do you think that's what explains it? Well, there's also the, I mean, there's also the fact that I can tell myself I'm going to watch the rematch to, to see McGregor get his ass kicked. You know, I mean, I can, I, right, yeah. you, you can kind of, and I think mm-hmm. that's a big, you know, that's a big part of it. You hate the one guy, you like the other guy and you want to, you want to see, uh, you know, revenge taken out on, on someone. Um, and that's, uh, and obviously that's a, that's been a big part of, of watching all these sports, uh, for probably, uh, what, you know, 10,000 years or so. Yeah. And like, you know, we didn't really get into the, fight that much but it went four rounds it was like a good fight as ufc fights go and there was a period in the beginning it kind of evened out a little bit and then um Nurmagomedov, who's a great grappler choked mcgregor out in the fourth round but in like the first and second round there were moments when it looked like Nurmagomedov was going to kill him like he <laughs> had him on the ground and was like punching him like right in the face or, you know, maybe it just looked like that to somebody who's not a sophisticated fan because, uh, you know, it looked to me like he was going to like punch through his skull. And, and if you like hate McGregor, 
then I guess that's enjoyable. So did you see the, the, the actual hold at the end? Because somebody pointed this out, that the, 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 the chokehold that ended the fight, that McGregor tapped, right? And, and he that, didn't stop uh, choking him. The ref had to He didn't stop choking him, right. And then they had, he had to, the, the ref had to step in. And then when he was over, I mean, this is a testament. He had just won the fight. That's vindication. Like That's like, okay, I kicked this guy's ass. He talked all this shit, and I beat his ass. And he was still mad. I mean, I think, <laughs> it, but he spit. Did he spit at him? Did he spit at Conor McGregor when it I was over? I didn't see that. He threw his mouthpiece. I think he was throwing it in the direction at the guy who was allegedly calling him a fucking Muslim rat throughout the fight. <laughs> right. Well, if you if you look if you look at if you look at the, the very end where the ref finally gets him off of him, there's a moment where he says something or he spits t- in McGregor's dire- direction, where it's just like the culmination of all of this rage. And I was like, oh no, he like. Normally, fighters tell you, I cannot fight angry, like, I can't fight with emotion because it'll get you out of your, you know, get you out of your game plan or whatever. But it certainly seemed to have been the fuel uh, for him on So, So I just heard from UFC, they're cutting this entire segment as a promo for for the rematch. (laughs) This is all all good hype for them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Saturday, Alabama football coach Nick Saban said, I don't think that you really beat the other team when you give up 31 points like we did today, at least on the defensive perspective. Well, I have uh, bad news for uh, Nick Saban. Uh, that's not how football works. Um, the, the Crimson Tide beat Arkansas 65 to 31, which came after they beat ULL 56 to 14, which was preceded by a 45-23 win over Texas A&M, which came after a 62-7 to win over Ole Miss, and they also beat Arkansas State 57-7 and Louisville 51-14. to Joel, you were in charge of uh, writing up the ESPN college football power rankings this past week, which seems like maybe yeah. an irrelevant exercise uh, to me. Uh, how did you, how did you <laughs> yeah. think about who to put at number one? Um, well, I mean, basically, I mean, you just basically, you start with number two every week every, every, until Alabama loses, uh, you start with number two. And I mean, the one thing about it is that it's, yeah, we really don't know. Alabama hasn't played a team that can punch back. They haven't really been in any danger. Like, I mean, they look like the, you know, one of the greatest teams in the history of college football, but we don't actually know anything because they haven't been on the road and played a team that has like, you know, four and five stars just like they do. But I mean, you can read like it's not like they're engaged in like dog fights with these other teams, right? Like they're they're beat like we know that we can reasonably assume that Ole Miss is a pretty good team. That uh well, Louisville actually isn't any good. But you know, that 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 some of these teams are not as bad as Alabama's making them look, but that I mean Nobody has had the stretch that Tua Tagovailoa has had uh, through the first six games. I mean, I, um, you know, Bill Connolly, who's great over at SB Nation, you know, he's a, a stat nerd, and he put together, uh, you know, you, you sent it around last night, like this, the six game stretches of like all these Heisman Trophy winners at, previously, and like 
his stretch like blows it out of the water. Like it's um, it's unbelievable. It's like he's playing a completely different game. Like I guess it would be like what if 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 slam ball was basketball. Uh, <laughs> Like that's what he's playing in football, um, and so yeah, it's like, I mean, it's just yeah. Like I, so, his first six games as a starter, two of his first six games are better than the best six game stretches yeah. of all of these Heisman winning quarterbacks. And like Alabama is flawed to the extent that they've had one in the Saban era is that their quarterbacks have just been kind of adequate, um, and that's like kind of what you could point to as an opponent. But like now. It, it seems like cheating that they actually have a really good quarterback. I mean, it was it was two years ago they had the SEC Offensive Player of the Year, and that's the guy he beat out to, you know. But, you know, Hurts was a guy. Jalen Hurts is somebody who, even as he was the SEC Player of the Year, was somebody whose strength was not throwing the football. Right. Like, th- like Alabama, Ben having the ability to, like, throw the forward pass – just seems like it's kind of <laughs> it's, it's brought them to a whole other level. Can you imagine? I mean, it's like uh, I think I think uh, other people have made this observation, but it is like uh, you remember the old Onion article about dolphins evolving opposable thumbs, um, and it's like well, <laughs> now humans have no reason to exist. Uh, basically, the rest of college football is now the humans in that analogy, um, and Alabama is like the super hybrid genetic super creature. Yeah, and so behind that super creature are the kind of, uh, you know, mostly okay teams that Joel has to shuffle around in his uh, power rankings, and we debate who's going to get in the playoff. Um, Notre Dame was one that you mentioned as we were doing prep, uh, Ben, is like they've kind of gone through the toughest part of their schedule they're undefeated. The entire nation, as it as it does, roots for them to lose. But it's kind of increasingly difficult to see them, uh, you know, getting getting a loss on their schedule. And this is a team that's like more typical in college football, where it's like you really don't know if they're any good or not. They haven't lost anyone yet. Um, what what do we kind of make of Notre Dame this year? I mean, I, I think that. The thing I'll say for Notre Dame is that uh, as much as I, like everyone else, enjoy kind of uh, mocking uh, the, their schedule and referring to their previous experience making um, uh, the, uh, what was the BCS uh, then championship game by going undefeated against a kind of a weak schedule um, and then getting beat about 100, not, 100 to nothing or so by Alabama. It, this year, it's actually not really Notre Dame's fault. If you look who, who they scheduled... They scheduled Michigan, they scheduled Stanford, USC, uh, they got Virginia Tech, Florida State. It's not really their fault that maybe all those teams are not that great. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, possibly the best team um, on that list might be Michigan, and Michigan might still go 8-4. and four. Um, You know, it, it, they, they did their best this year. They tried to put together uh, a good schedule. Um, and, uh, and it turned out that, you know, Florida state and USC are, are just very bad. Joel, what do you make of, uh, Notre Dame? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that they're sort of like, um, they're sort of like Alabama light, right? They, that like, they, like people knew that they had a decent def- defensive line. They've got like the capability to run the ball, but because they were hamstrung with, you know, Brandon Wimbush for so long, um, it really put a cap on like what they could do offensively. But this this Another new kid, they've got could not throw a pass. Yeah, right. No, you're right. They found somebody who can actually throw the ball 
more than five yards down the field. And it's it's kind of opened them up. Like before before in book got into the lineup, they had gone seven straight games without scoring thirty points. And in every start that in book has had the last three, they've scored more than thirty points. So um, it suggests that like maybe they're legitimately good. And yeah, like Ben said, I mean they you know they've done the best that they can. And we like we said like I mean I don't know maybe Michigan is good. USC might be a totally different team by the end of the year That's when. Right. Um, we, when 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 Notre Dame gets there, and also, I mean, college football is weird, dude. I mean, they could easily lose to Syracuse, you know, like it's like, and that's we just don't. I mean, these are eighteen to twenty two year old kids. Like, there's no telling what might happen. They could easily yeah. lose to Pitt too, you know. Like, we, so um, it's 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 yet to be determined if they'll actually end up undefeated. And the same thing with Alabama, by the way. Like, I mean, we we go through this every year, and I mean, this is even me saying this is cliche. But like we go through this assumption every year that everybody is going to go undefeated, and it just does not happen that way. That it's like very hard, and Alabama still has to play the SEC championship game more than likely. They got to play LSU. They've got to play Mississippi State. They've got to play Auburn. Like, which is even though Auburn looked bad this weekend, like that's not a gimme either. Uh, the other thing that I find funny about college football, and that uh, forgive me if I've said this a million times on this show before, but it's the one sport I think just because of the structure of it where if you win or lose an individual game it's an it's a referendum on the quality of your team full stop like nobody would say that a team that plays badly in an NFL game is like horrible like NFL teams just have bad games the patriots started one and two nobody's saying that they're not uh you know going to make the super bowl but like when michigan loses to notre dame for example um, and, and Ben can comment on this more, uh, uh, with, with more intimate knowledge, but it's just, oh, Michigan is fake. Michigan is bad. Like Michigan sucks. It's not like they had a bad game and they'll potentially come back. Like that is the most consistently amusing thing about college football to me. Oh, and it's not even, oh, this team is bad. It's the coach is bad. The athletic director who hired him is an idiot. Uh, <laughs> well, that's fair. What have we all been doing for the last four years? thinking that this coach would ever win a game like this. <laughs> I mean, you could look up uh, the blank. I think you could search on a message board. The name of coach experiment is over. Um, you know, for every, every, I think I saw, saw this week with Gus Malzahn, you know, uh, it, you know, an Auburn fans reacting to, uh, to their play. And it, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a catastrophe and it's not just that the, the players, you know, the, the players don't care. They're not being coached right. It really, it like, it's like the entire, entire fan base, these entire regions engaging in this kind of bitter self-reflection, uh, all because, you know, in the case of that Notre Dame-Michigan game, you know, maybe a couple plays went the wrong way. Um, for, well, as Joel, Joel uh, was saying, it's like the funny thing is that it's like the most capricious of all sports, like because these are like kids playing this game because football – um, is like so the outcomes of games are like so determined by you know turnovers and penalties and injuries, like especially injuries. injuries. Yeah. And Joel, who right. like played played college football, you know that it's like uh, it it's at times like totally random who wins or not. And so it's like funny that we have this image of the sport that's totally contrary to that. Right. T- tell me who's better between LSU, Florida, Kentucky, or Texas A&M. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, th- like we just don't know. It depends when they're playing in the season, where they're playing, 
who's hurt. You know what I mean? Like, so you, we, often the thing about college football that's weird too is that is that like they publish injury reports. So you'll go into a game thinking one thing is going to happen, and it's like, oh, by the way, their left tackle is not going to be playing today, and their second string guy is not a professional. It may just be a redshirt freshman who's never played a snap before, right? Um, so we just have no way of knowing. Uh, but I think one thing that we can all agree on is that Mike Stoops is bad. <laughs> Texas is back. That's what we can agree on. Texas, yeah. uh, Texas, <laughs> Texas breaking into the top 10 after losing to Maryland and giving up 45 points to Oklahoma. Texas is back. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Joel, the Central Florida is undefeated again. Uh, they, they obviously won the national title last year. As they will, yeah, right. as they will tell you, they're they're flying the the banner. Um, they are they're back and having another good year, and are probably the hardest team to power rank. And it doesn't really seem like you know when Boise State was going undefeated for all those years, they kind of built up this equity, right, where people counted their success from previous years towards the next season. It seemed like like they got ranked high just based on past experience. But it just doesn't seem quite like even though we've had two seasons now of data with this UCF team that people are still buying what they're selling. And it just doesn't seem like they have any chance in the like college football beauty contest of breaking into the top four and making the playoff. Does that seem right? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I don't think there's any way that UCF even if they go undefeated again, gets a shot at the playoff. And they beat Auburn in the ball game last year. Like, so, so why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't well, respect Because I them? think it's easy, to discount, it's easy to discount what Auburn was, even though up until the SEC championship game, Auburn had a shot to play in the playoff itself, right? But Auburn like, beat oh, number like, oh. one teams in back-to-back weeks. They beat Georgia Right, exactly. But then they, I think they ended the season with three losses. And so I was like, ah, well, maybe Auburn actually wasn't that good in the first place. And so people sort of look past that. I don't think pe- people don't take Auburn seriously in the way that if they had beaten Alabama, Georgia, that that would have counted. Right. But like we're always moving the goalposts for UCF. Um, they're basically playing a completely different uh, division of football. Um, you know, no, they're ge- it's weird. Their games aren't on TV in the way that I felt like yeah, that I think is a big factor. Yeah. Yeah, when Boise was going through its run, I felt like they always had like a premier, uh, you know, a primetime game, something that everybody could sort of rally around, whether it was playing Georgia or Oklahoma State or, you know, whatever. Like we would get a chance to see them. But UCF, like I'm watching their game. It would, I felt like their game against SMU this weekend wasn't even really like, you know, shot in high depth. You know what I mean? Like it, it looked like watching a game from 1997 and it's like, ah, oh, I can't, you know, is that McKenzie Milton out there? I don't know. So yeah, they just, they don't even have, They've only got one year of this, and they don't even have the profile. And then also, they don't have the same coach, and so people probably say, "Well, how much does Scott Frost have to do with their success?" And so I just, you know, it's, it's, it's I mean, if you're a UCF, like I guess, like you know, you can, you know, assuage yourself with the idea that you won the national championship last year, and maybe you'll get to do it again without ever actually having to play Alabama, which maybe is sort of a win in the in the long run, anyway. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. Let us go from there directly into after balls. And the coach 
of the University of Central Florida after Scott Frost left is Josh Heupel, former Oklahoma quarterback, um, whose last name, Ben, is pronounced Heupel. Heupel, H-E-U-P-E-L. Um, you. you have Josh Heupel thoughts? Um, my, uh, my Josh Heupel thought of the day is that he finished uh, above Drew Brees um, in the Heisman voting uh, in Drew Brees' last year in college, which uh, I think in retrospect we can say was, was maybe an error. I think maybe Drew Brees should have taken it over Josh <laughs> Heupel and, uh, and Chris Wanky. Also, we should point out that Josh Heupel went to the Miami Dolphins in the NFL draft the year that Breeze came out and Dolphins uh, head coach Dave Wanstead was a, reportedly happy to get Hypel instead of uh, oh. Drew Breeze. He just thought that uh, they didn't need Breeze. They had Hypel. Um, ben, what is your Josh Hypel? My, uh, my Hypel is, is, is an aggrieved rant about college football commercials uh, that revolves around the experience of having had to watch Fox's Michigan Northwestern broadcast two weekends ago. Uh, so this game was listed in the in the 4:30 time slot, but when you turned on the television, you learned that kickoff was not actually scheduled to take place until 4:48 p.m. After which, by my count, there was something like 10 commercials in the first 12 minutes of airtime, during which two minutes or so elapsed off the game clock. You know, kickoff, three plays, punt, more commercials. So if you turned on the TV at 4:30. The first half hour of your viewing experience was two minutes of football and 28 minutes of studio filler and truck commercials. Now, a Michigan fan named Kevin McCarthy, who had the game DVR'd, uh, went back and counted for me last night after I put out the call on Twitter. And Kevin found that between kickoff and the moment the clock ran out in the first quarter of this game, Fox took five commercial breaks. So that's five commercial breaks in the, in the first quarter. Something like 28 minutes of commercials in the first half hour. The game itself, once it started, took three hours and 21 minutes. Uh, Michigan, my uh, team that I watch every week, hasn't played a game this year that's even come close to fitting in the traditional three-hour broadcast window. Shortest game was this weekend against Maryland, which was played with what seemed to be slightly fewer commercial breaks after a rain delay, which still took three hours and 18 minutes to finish. So the bad news about commercials in college football, and this is endemic across all games, not just Michigan, is that broadcasters are not really suffering as a result of all the tedium. As Sports Business Daily's Austin Karp pointed out to Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch, in a roundup of last year's college ratings after the season, total TV viewership of the sport is probably at all-time record levels, given the big increase in the number of games being broadcast. Uh, Fox and FS1 have, have come into the market, and so there are more games on than ever before, probably more total, total viewed, minutes viewed than ever before. In-person attendance, however, fell 3% last year, marking what CBS's Dennis Dodd has noted is the fourth straight season in which it dropped. Overall, attendance has fallen 10% in nine years, in-person stadium attendance. That's probably a long-term problem for the sport, given the way that the unique game day experience is a critical part of many fans' uh, college fans' enthusiasm for their teams. The good news is the most important person in the sport has noticed. After a win over Louisiana Lafayette earlier this year, Alabama coach Nick Saban said he was, quote, a little disappointed, uh, which, which in Saban uses, is, is, indicates fury, total fury, <laughs> by how few students were in attendance at the game. Saban seemed to blame this on their insufficient loyalty to the team, but being asked to sit through extended breaks in play after every series so a network could air 19 consecutive Cialis ads probably doesn't help motivate them to show up either. The other factor here is that, well, overall TV viewership seems to be as high as ever. It's now split between more networks, thanks to Fox's entry into the market. Uh, and ratings for non-Fox networks actually declined a bit last year. So while TV executives rarely need to listen to fans, they might need to listen to angry Nick Saban. 
and they could possibly gain some competitive advantage over other networks by not being the channel that makes you hate yourself for spending 210 consecutive minutes watching a single sporting event every Saturday. In any case, here's hoping Nick stays as upset going forward about spotty attendance as he does about things like his third-string safeties giving up an unacceptable amount of yardage in garbage time of a 30-point win over Arkansas. I love the the part of the Saban rant, by the way, where he was like acting like the, the students hadn't earned yeah. it. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> you've got to, you know, you've you've got to go out there and and work for these uh, championship students. You can't you can't just expect that it's going to be given. Yeah, that was that was the game that and during which they were uh, ahead of Louisiana Lafayette by by twenty eight points after like five minutes. You know, it's like wow, I can't believe no one wanted to consume that entertainment product. Slow your roll, Alabama. Too good, too good for the students. Uh, Joel, you have a uh, hypo for us. I do, and I hate to bring down things just a tad, um, but uh, I'm also going to be a company man here and recommend the Sale documentary that's running on ESPN Plus, uh, and it's sort of like the uh, counterpoint story to what we saw with Drew Brees uh, yesterday. That you know, if you followed football in the '90s and early 2000s, it would have been really hard to not know who Junior Seau was. Um, you know, he was had this high-energy, big-smiling Samoan dude who just always seemed to have a knack for being wherever the ball was. And, you know, you can make a case that he's one of the five or six best middle linebackers to ever play uh, the game. Um, So if you're watching this documentary, like, there is no happy ending, right? Like, we sort of know that his death, um, his suicide was a flashpoint uh, in the in, in, in the discussion on CTE and how people and how the NFL started talking about, um, you know, traumatic brain injuries suffered by its, uh, former players. Um, the one thing though, that I thought about this thing, um, like watching this documentary, which is really sad, really morose. Like, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's jarring to see this happy, smiling, like dynamic guy, like starting off in the eighties and nineties. And then like, by the time you get to the two thousands, you can, you can almost literally see the changes on junior sales face and in his body, like the way that he moves, how often he's getting hurt out there. But the one thing I thought about, I was like, Oh, people really did not know junior say all very well. And I, and even though I am recommending this documentary, what I would say is that even, even the documentary doesn't necessarily get so much at who Junior Seau was. Like, you just get the sense that people were saying, well, we had to read his diaries to know what he was feeling. Like, his family wasn't close to him. He didn't really seem to have really good friends. I, wh- there's one guy who's a, uh, like, a local broadcaster in San Diego, and he's interviewed repeatedly throughout this documentary. And I'm like, wait a minute, this guy wasn't his friend. Like, he's just somebody that followed his career really closely for a number of years. Um, and some of that may be that like, you know, maybe that's the toll that the game took on him because one of the, one of the more jarring scenes in there is from 1994, right? Like Junior Seau retired like, you know, a decade and a half later, but there's this home video in 1994 uh, from his then, um, wife, a picture of him, like a, a video of him in the bedroom with the, with, you know, the, the, uh, the blinds are drawn He's laying on the bed. It's very dark in there. And he's like indicating how bad his head is hurting. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Like if he continued to play football for many more years after that. Um, so at any rate, I mean, it's during football season. I don't want to ruin your fun. Like football is a fun sport. I played it. I cover it now. 
Um, there's a lot that there is to offer to the game, but um, if you watch this thing, it's hard not to think about what's happening to these guys out there and hard to think of like, not just Junior Seau, but all of these men and former teammates who, you know, not to be unkind, they seem greatly diminished. And I'm thinking in particular here of Gary Plummer and Fred McCrary. And if you watch, if you watch this documentary and you see Gary Plummer and Fred McCrary, come back to me, reach out to me, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you just kind of feel like there's a sad ending at the end of this. And so, um, yeah, most endings don't come like Drew Brees' or Junior Seau's. They're somewhere in the middle. And if you happen to believe um, the latest news on CTE and traumatic brain injuries in the NFL, um, those endings can still end up being pretty bad. So, yes, you asked us um, who, who our hypos are, who's yours? So I'm going to bring us down uh, as well um, by talking about uh, Brett Kavanaugh. He, before he said repeatedly that he liked beer, he was telling anyone who would listen that he likes sports. He likes going to games with his dad. He likes mm-hmm. buying a mysterious amount of Washington National season tickets. Uh, he likes coaching <laughs> girls basketball. And that's how you know he's going to be a great Supreme Court justice because no one who likes sports has ever been bad. Is that, <laughs> isn't that right, sports fans? Um, but I want to talk about another Supreme Court justice who has a connection to sports, and that is the longtime judge on the Minnesota Supreme Court, Alan Page. Alan Page is an NFL Hall of Famer. He played on the Vikings in the 70s. He was part of the famed Purple People Eaters defensive line. He joined the Bears at the end of his 15-year career. He was a six-time All-Pro. He was the AP NFL Defensive Player of the Year one year. Uh, Great player, has all of the accolades. And also, while he was still playing for the Vikings, he was going to University of Minnesota Law School at night. He got his JD he worked at a law firm in the off season, which is like he, he didn't play that long ago. This was like in the 70s, but that's like a very kind of old timey idea, like even uh, something that happened that recently that a player would have an, an off season job, much less uh, work at a law firm. Um, then after he left the league, he became an assistant attorney general in Minnesota. Then in 1992, an associate justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court. They have six year terms. He um got uh was was on it again and again and again and then he stayed until he turned 70 in 2015 and they have mandatory retirement in minnesota um alan page is a guy who i think people might have heard of but in minnesota in particular he is totally revered and just seems like a, a person that everybody in that state loves and respects and you really got a sense of that this local news clip that I came across on um, Twitter the other day that honestly like made me tear up. It was so <laughs> emotional. Like his wife, his longtime wife, who's somebody who um, people in Minnesota also know, Diane, um, who he had an education foundation with, um, died within the last uh, week or so. And and Paige and his wife would always go to the, the marathon. Um, I think it's in Minneapolis and would cheer on the runners and for whatever, for some reason, as one does, he plays the tuba during the marathon. So like NFL Hall of Famer, Minnesota Supreme Court Justice also plays the tuba. And so there's this footage um, in this news report of Alan Page a week after his wife dies, wanting to like go out and support runners at the marathon playing the tuba. And you have all of these runners stopping in the middle of their run, going up to him and offering condolences. And I have a clip of that that I'd like to play. Um, 
Your Honor, respectfully, thank you so much for all you do for children and students in the city. And my condolences to your family. Thank you. God bless you. I hope you have peace and I hope you have fond memories of running with your wife and riding bike around the way. Thank, thank you. So. I'm not sure Alan Page is actually that great a tuba player. That's why I went. No, that, that that's that's my that's my takeaway there. No, but like to be like at the risk of being incredibly sincere, like after this whole Supreme Court nomination process and the person that we just put on the Supreme Court to like get a sense of like this is actually somebody who is um, unquestionably an unbelievably good person. Like just based on reading a little bit, hearing the way people talk about him um, and like his career um, and and watching that report and, and what he just did is just was just so stark to me. And like, I don't know if you guys have had these like moments in the last couple of weeks as the news has been going on where just something in particular hit you. But that was the thing that, that really hit me is seeing the contrast there. Oh, man. Yeah, that's. So maybe you maybe think now is there a biography about him out there anywhere now that you mention it? I don't know. Like I feel like more should be known about him or or written about him for sure. Like I I will confess that he's somebody that had always kind of like ambiently been around, like, hey, there's that football player who's on the Minnesota Supreme Court. That's kind of weird. But Mm -hmm. I hadn't I, I kind of feel bad like I hadn't taken the time to really learn about him. And he's somebody that like everybody should know about. Absolutely. One one quick thing too, uh, to to glom off your part. If if anybody out there has any footage of the 1982 Georgetown Prep uh, high school football team, I would love for you to send it to me. Or if like you if if you played against that team, um, please send it to me. I I just for <laughs> for research purposes. Okay. Uh, you know where to find Joel on uh, on Twitter, yeah. Joel Anderson. Yeah. All right, that is our show for today. Our producer this week was Danielle Hewitt. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Joel Anderson, thank you for guesting this week. Hey, thanks for having me on, as always. Uh, ben Mathis Lilly, thank you. Thanks, Josh. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 